to nerve. They, they. I know parents can be sensitive in some of these areas. You know, as I was thinking about this, I couldn't help but think of the word, words of the old Anglican J.C. Ryle that I came across in one of the parenting books. Well, it was the one that he wrote. He says in a little footnote in a book that he wrote on parenting, as a minister, I cannot help remarking that there is hardly any subject about which people seem so tenacious as they are about their children. Now, I know that that, that sentence means absolutely nothing to you if you don't know what the word tenacious means. That word, folks, it has to do with holding fast or holding tightly to our opinions. You know, what Ryle is saying is that in all of his pastoring career, all of his pastoring years, whenever he has had to deal with people about their children above any other thing, when he has had to correct or rebuke, point the finger at or instruct parents because of some faulty opinions that they've held with regards to the character of their children or the way they're raising their children, in nothing else have parents been so adamant to want to hold on and resist and be hard-headed. And you know, if you want to find out how easily us Americans are offended, just go deal with one of the brethren about their children. And you'll, you'll find out, folks. You will find out. Brethren, we must remember this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. They are blessed. God says, I'll tell you who I look to. I look to the humble. I look to the contrite of heart. And I look to those who tremble at My Word. And folks, if we need anything in our parenting, it is a look from God. We need God to look. The Scripture says that He fills the hungry with good things. But the rich, He sends away empty. Parents, grandparents, you do not want to be rich parents. You don't want to be one who knows it all and you've got it all together and you can't be corrected, you can't be rebuked, and you can't be instructed. We need to be impoverished parents. We need to be poor parents. We need to approach parents and say, Lord, I don't know it all. I don't have this figured out. And if somebody comes and corrects me, the first thing that I ought to do is say, Lord, is this You? Is this Your voice? So, now as we turn our attention towards parenting once again, you guys, I am absolutely convinced. I've read so, I, I told you this before. I went through and I read a whole bunch of these child-rearing books. A bunch of them. And you know what? Some of them jump in in first chapter and I could do this. I could simply start out right now by giving you guys laws and commandments and regulations and do's and don'ts and we could start building up all these things. But I'll tell you what, folks. A bunch of laws and a bunch of law giving and a bunch of rules and regulations is... I just simply don't believe it is profitable. I am convinced it is unprofitable and I'm convinced it's unprofitable biblically. Because you know what happens when all you do is set up a list of rules and do's and don'ts? You're going to get some people who come closer to keeping them, at least externally. And what does that produce? Self-righteousness. And then you beat down people who don't match your little list. And folks it ends up leading to legalism. Mm -hmm. Paul told the Galatians, 
You folks started in the Spirit. You started by the power of the Spirit of God. You started this Christian race by faith in Jesus Christ. And he said, what are you going to do now that you're Christians? You're going to run away from all that and you're going to go back to your law keeping over here? He says, no way. You walk the Christian life the same way you started it, by faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying, folks, that faith in Christ won't lead us to keep Christ's commandments, because it does, and it will. What I am saying is, when you set up your legal requirements and your laws and your restrictions and everything, without your eyes set on Jesus Christ, all your law-keeping and rule-making and regulations are going to lead to nothing in your parenting, nothing more than cold, dead, dry strugglings of the flesh. I guarantee that. That's the case. That's what Paul's battling there for. Folks, the Colossians were told by Paul this. Hold fast to the head. The head is Christ. Hold fast to Him. Don't let go of Him. It says this. Hold fast to the head. Colossians 2.19 From whom the whole body That means the whole church, all Christians, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Do you really want to grow in your parenting? Do you want to be spiritually nourished as a parent? Do you want growth that is from God in your family? Well, you know what? Christ-centered parenting is the key here. It really is. In fact, looking at that text, I said... (laughs) Hold to your head, parenting. That, folks, is where we need to be. We need to be clinging to the head, to the chief, to the captain of our salvation all the way through this thing. You will not grow in parenting simply by putting a list of ten regulations up on your refrigerator. It's not going to happen. My brethren, you must live in the Scriptures And you must walk with your God. You must seek for Christ diligently. Behold Him in the Word. Folks, you must behold Him. There there is a beauty in Christ. And there is a majesty in Christ. And there is a power in beholding Him. In Him, there is a perfection. Folks, when you view Christ, you view a righteousness which He worked out and He labored for and He sweat and He toiled for and He walked through this life and He did perfectly and He pleased His Father and He obeyed His earthly parents. There is a perfection in Him. And with all this perfection and all this glory and all of it, put together, folks, He then turns to us and He looks us dead in the eyes and He says, follow Me. Follow Me. Those are the words of the ages, folks. Follow Me. And remember what He taught us? Folks, we are the followers. He's the leader. Remember what I hit on last week? Folks, in Luke 17.10, Jesus Christ taught us to say this. Remember what it was? Say this. We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Folks, we are the servants. Jesus is the Master. Jesus is the owner. Remember, He says, all things are mine. Your family is His. Your children are His. You are His. And now somebody's going to say, Brother, I remember you said that last week. You know what? I did. But this has to 
We have to come to grips with Christ is to have preeminence. He owns everything. He created everything. It is by Him. It is for Him. It is to Him. It is through Him. And He sustains it all. And yes, I said it two weeks ago and one week ago and today. Christ is to have preeminence in everything. You see, folks, this cannot be a thought that you and I simply remember on Sunday that the pastor said last week. This has to be a thought that when you rise up in the morning and when you lay down at night and when you live your life, when you rise up in the morning and you come face to face with your children and you need to parent them, you need to instruct them, you need to discipline them, it needs to be in your mind all the time. Christ is to have preeminence in this relationship with my son or my daughter. How I raise them. How I direct them. What I allow in their life. In all things, if I sit them down in front of that television, is what's coming from that television directing them towards preeminence of Christ in all things. Everything, folks. That television cannot be a babysitter for your children simply to make life easier for you. Christ is to have preeminence. When you lay that rod to the behind of your children, it's not simply, well, they aggravated me and I need to do this. Is it for the preeminence of Christ? In all things He is to have glory. Whether you feed your children or give drink to them. Eating and drinking, folks. Everything needs to be to His glory. Everything. This cannot simply be, yes, I remember He said this last week. It's got to be something that on Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays and Fridays I'm constantly thinking this mindset. Folks, it will govern what you do with your children. If you're constantly thinking is this pleasing to Christ? Is this exalting to Christ? Is, Folks, it is the Father's will and we read it that Christ may have preeminence in all things. And if you are dealing with your children in large segments of your life where you deal with them and there is no reference to Christ, there is no thought to Christ, and what you're doing really has nothing to do with His superiority and His preeminence and His majesty at all. I mean, there's not, you leave Him out of big chunks of the way you deal with your children. Then you know what? That portion of your parenting is directly in contradiction to the purposes of God the Father. And you can't expect to be blessed in those areas. You can't. You can't. And, and folks, listen to me. I am not talking simply about taking your kids to church on Sundays and a little bit of evangelistic direction in their life. As good and as valuable as those things are, I'm talking about loving Christ before your children and striving diligently and prayerfully to do all the things that Christ commands you to do as a parent. And no matter how exhausting and difficult that thing might be, I'm talking about humbly seeking to imitate Christ and reveal Him through your own transformed life and through your own aggressive Christ-likeness. I mean, we have to ask ourselves, folks, do your children see Christ in you? Do they smell the fragrance of Christ in your life? I mean, folks, that's, that's at the heart of this matter. And we ought not to wonder sometimes why our children don't have more interest in Christ. We ought not. Christ sustains 
the most exalted rank in the universe. But at times, our children just can't see it. And you know why? We are in the way. Our life and our actions and our words become a barrier to our children. Do you know what Christ said? Let the little children come to Me and don't hinder them. That is the wisdom that comes from the Master's lips. His wisdom is vast. It is immeasurable. In fact, right, right there in Colossians, it says that in Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so, in the wisdom and knowledge of Jesus Christ, what do we have in the Scriptures? I mean, I told you guys last week, in all of the New Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ gives us only three commands. There are other things in the New Testament that might give us some information about children and about raising the children. I don't deny that. But in all the New Testament, there are only three imperatives that we are given all through what the 27 books of the New Testament that have to do with parenting. I said them to you last week. Let me re- repeat them to you again. Three imperatives. Matthew 19.14 Let the little children come to Me and do not hinder them. Colossians 3.21 Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Ephesians 6.4 Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's it. Just three. Someone may say, wait a second, brother. As far as I can see there, Jesus only gave us one commandment. Those other two you talk about from Colossians and Ephesians, those come from the Apostle Paul. Well, that's right, they do. But we we have to remember what an apostle is. An apostle, by definition, at least on my on my Bible software, specifically says, one sent forth with orders. Or one sent forth with a message. Now, oftentimes, Paul calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, who do you think, if he's an apostle of Jesus Christ, who do you think sent him forth? And who do you think gave him the orders? And where do you think the, the message came from? Listen to what Peter says about apostles. I am striving... Or I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. 2 Peter 3, 1 and 2. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Peter is clearly saying there that the Lord Jesus Christ gives commandments through His apostles. So I I think I'm on very solid ground to say Christ gives us three imperatives in the New Testament. Last week we talked about this. Don't provoking your children. The reason I picked that one out to deal with first is because with only three commands given... Don't provoke your children is actually twice. And you know, repetition is something that we ought to not really ignore. We don't want to just pass it off. Repetition is important. You know what? When, when you come to Matthew 23 and you got Jesus Christ saying seven times, woe unto you, Pharisees. That's, that's pretty weighty stuff. When you've got four Gospel accounts. That repetition means that God wants you to get the point here. And when we're told only three specific commands in the New Testament about the way to raise our children and twice don't provoke you, that's something you ought to take very careful attention to. But you know, 
on Monday, I was contemplating these three texts and all of a sudden, it was like a little light blinked on. And I thought, you know what? That isn't the only thing in those three passages that is repeated twice. There's something else repeated twice there. Hear them again. Let me read them solely to you. Jesus said, this is Matthew 19, let the little children come to Me and do not hinder them. Colossians 3.21 Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Ephesians 6.4 Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Did you guys hear something else repeated in there? Fathers. Exactly right. This is not something we just simply want to blow off. Folks, you know, you know what you find in the Scriptures? Fathers! 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 The Lord is saying, Fathers, you have an integral part in the raising of your children. Fathers! You know, you know what? It's not just something that ought to grab our attention because it's there twice in the Scriptures. I would remind you of this. There is a generic term for parents. And Paul specifically did not use it. He specifically uses a term that gives us an emphasis on the male head, the leader of the family. Specifically. And you know what? Rightly so. The male head is the authority in the family. And authorities, you know, with authority always comes responsibility, right? Always. You guys, have you ever considered the family structure? Do you know in that, in that portion of Scripture we just read from Colossians 1, did you hear in there thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities? Or maybe your Bible says principalities and powers. Do you remember all that? It says Christ, they're by Him, they're for Him. All those things. Well, you know what? That term authority, if you do as I did this, a search throughout the New Testament on that word, do you know that that word is used with regards to government? The authorities in government? You've got your, your governors and your presidents and your kings and so on. It is used with regards to military units. The, the hierarchy there, the rankings there, the authorities there, the officers there. It's used with regards... You guys understand the, the term principalities and powers or authorities, rulers and authorities. That sometimes is used in the Scriptures to refer to the demonic realm, to the, to the enemies of God. And it is also used with regards to the angelic host, the, the holy angels. But you know what? It's also used with regards to the family. Do you see what this is saying? Christ is the designer of all the authoritative systems that are upon this face of the earth, whether visible or invisible. He created them. He designed them. The family is something not that came forth from evolution. It's not something that our society determined. It is something Jesus Christ Himself designed. And do you know how He designed it? He designed it very specifically with an order. There is authority in the family. And it clear, you know what? It is not even debatable that this order is found clearly in the Scriptures. A lot of people out there in the world want to debate it today, but they do so by debunking and, and basically uh, ignoring 
the Word of God. You know what the Word of God says? In 1 Corinthians 11, it says that Christ is the head of the man. The husband is head of the wife. We are told over in Ephesians 5 that wives submit to your husbands. Just as the church submits to Christ, so you must submit to your husband. And then we find in Ephesians 6 and verse 1, children are to submit or to obey their parents, both mom and dad. So you've got that hierarchy. You've got Christ, you've got the husband, you've got the wife, and you've got the children. It is so clearly laid out in Scripture. Like I say, it is not even debatable. But I'll tell you this, folks. Whatever the authority might be, whether it's in family, in government, in the demons, in the angels, whatever it might be, it says that Jesus Christ has been exalted to the right hand of His Father far above all the authorities and all the rulers and all the dominions. All of it. He is high above it all. He has the authority. Ultimately, He fashioned them. He is in control. Now, guys, this is the first half. It was the introduction. It was the lead-in. Because the point here is, God designed the family in a certain way. Now, let me tell you something. This is, this is by way of observation. I have read numerous missionary books Biographies and autobiographies. And, you know, you always, anytime you read about a missionary's ventures and, and um, you know, his work, you always are going to get a description of the people that he's ministering to. And you're going to find out about all the difficulties that, that this man has had to go through. And, and most of the time in, in missionary accounts, you're going to get this kind of stuff. Do you know what clearly comes out of these things? No matter where you go in the world, you can go to Alaska, you can talk about the American Indians that lived here, you can go to South America, you can go to Africa, you can go to New Guinea, you can go out into the New Hebrides Islands, you can go to Tibet, you can go anywhere on the face of this earth. And you know what you find is a reality? That the darker that society that that missionary went to, darker means the less gospel light, the more remote the, the situation the less likelihood that Christ's name has ever been mentioned among these people. When you go to places where for centuries they have been without any shred of gospel light, you know what? You find the depravity of the peoples in the different areas to be the same. You know what? Take away gospel light and people get naked. That's, that's just plain. Unless they live in the north. And I guarantee you, if they live in the north, they don't dress simply because they're trying to be moral. They're dressing because it's cold, folks. But where you find darkness, you find nakedness. And where you find darkness, you know what else often is common? I mean, when, when, it, when you go to the dark holes on the face of this earth, and it doesn't matter what continent it is, you know what you've got? Headhunters and cannibals. And jealousy and envy 
and superstition and some form of witch doctor. Folks, this isn't just... You may have heard stories like this, but I'll guarantee you, it's not just one place in the world. You, if you look at, at Indonesia, if you look at New Guinea, if you look at the New Hebrides, if you look at Africa, if you look at South America, which basically are the areas in the world where European missionaries have gone for the last several centuries, if you look at those areas, you know what? You could be reading all the same book when you find out about what the people are like. But hear this. The more satanic a society, the less involved the fathers are with the children. That is uniform, folks. You know what the men do? Virtually nothing. The darker the society, the more dominating and domineering the men are. The wives are virtually slaves. They raise the kids. They raise the gardens. What do the guys do? Well, they're warriors. And they'll go out and have their thing. And once in a while they'll get together and they'll go out and hunt some wild game or something. And you know they'll parade it back into the city and... They, they basically are arrogant. They're proud. They like, they like to be applauded and gloated upon. But they don't do anything. The women, you know what? They might bring in their wild boar once in a while, but the women are the ones growing the potatoes and they're the ones working the gardens and they're the ones mashing the meal and they're the ones you know, making their... And you know what's very interesting? Is when you come all the way around up until... Here we have the day spring from on high ready to rise up. And the forerunner comes. John the Baptist. That Elijah that would come. Do you know what it said he would be? The forerunner of the Lord. And do you know what it says about him? If you look specifically at Luke 1.17, it says that John was going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Amazing! A forerunner of the Lord. And how was he preparing the people for the Lord? Fathers, your hearts given to the children. You, you ask yourselves, what is the tendency in this country? What is it? Is the tendency in this country for, for men, for husbands, for, for fathers to be coming more and more and more and more involved in their children's lives? Compare it today to 40 years ago or to 140 years ago. What is happening in our country? I'll guarantee you what's happening. Men are more and more and more becoming less and less and less involved in the families and less involved with the children. And you know what? That is clearly indicative of a satanically controlled culture. Guarantee it. There's an attack on the family and there's an especial attack on fatherhood in this country. An especial attack. Statistics. I heard on the radio the other day. Now, I don't have these numbers exactly right. I know that one was in the teens and one was in the 90s here. You'll know what that means as I give you the statistics that I heard. Somebody came on the radio for one of the churches. It may have been, been Cornerstone, but they, get, they laid out a statistic. They said, when mothers attend church, 13% of the time others in the family will follow her. When fathers attend church, 90% of the time, 
It was 90-some. I I don't remember exactly, but it was in the 90s. 90% of the time, others in the family will follow. Listen to this statistic as well. Well, this is a fact. This is a paper that came forth out of Harvard. I, I grabbed this from John MacArthur's sermon. Listen to what MacArthur says. This is speaking about Harvard sociologists. This isn't Christians. This isn't isn't theologians. This isn't pastors speaking here. MacArthur gets this information from Harvard. Listen to this. This is MacArthur's words. A few years back, two sociologists at Harvard University identified the crucial factors in predicting future delinquency in children ages 5 and 6. And then in their study, they tracked that for a number of years and they have found them their work to be 90% accurate. In other words, they can take a five-year-old or a six-year-old child, look at the factors in that child's life, and with 90% accuracy predict future delinquency in that child. And then they came back and they presented the four necessary factors that they saw in preventing children from becoming delinquent. Here are the four. These are Harvard sociologists. I I emphasize again. First thing, the father's discipline. It must be firm. It must be fair. And it must be consistent. Now, I would add here, it must be there. I mean, you, you don't have firm, consistent, fair discipline if you're not even disciplining. And oftentimes, husbands relegate that to the... Husbands... Men, fathers, are you taking it upon yourself to discipline your children? Remember what the Apostle said. Fathers, raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers, women, there's a place for you, but you are submissive to the husband. Husbands, you are to take the master role in this. This, You are to take the head. If your wife is raising the children, you are wrong. You are wrong in that. Fathers, you have that responsibility. Now listen. Where you have a father doing discipline firmly, fairly, consistently, you work against this future disaster, delinquency. Second, the mother's supervision. That's the word, the mother's supervision. The mother knows where they are at all times. She knows what they are doing at all times. And she is involved in their lives personally, continually supervising them. In her presence, she controls them. And even when they're out of her presence, she knows where they are and what they're doing. And they know she knows. A third factor to guarantee against future delinquent child is the father and mother's demonstrated affection where the father and mother love each other and demonstrate that affection before the children, there is a healthy response. They feel secure. They feel there's a loving control in their world. And they feel good about marriage. Affection. The fourth, very simple. The father's, or excuse me, the family's cohesiveness. Time spent together. Fathers, we can talk about revival and we can wonder about the lack of God moving among our children, 
But I think I can safely say to you the same thing C.T. Studd said about evangelism a long time ago. We Christians too often substitute prayer for playing the game. Prayer is good, but when used as a substitute for obedience, it is nothing but blatant hypocrisy, a despicable Phariseeism. The same is true of many praying fathers. You pray for your children. That's good. Those prayers are good. But they must be followed by hearty endeavors to deeply involve ourselves in the lives of our children in order that we may disciple them to become effective folks. This doctrine, it it can't just be something we hold in our heads. It's got to come home to your conscience with such impact and power that it produces changes in your life. I just ask you this. You know, what is it that men today more and more... I know you have a thousand and one excuses. Men in this assembly, there are men in this assembly that have not lived up to, to their gods, their creators, their masters, their saviors' instructions with regards to their children. And there are many excuses and you have them. But I want to ask you this. When it's all said and done and your life is over and you lay your head down and your children have ran off into the winds of the world... Is it worth it? Was that nicer house or that nicer vehicle worth it? Are your children worth it? And you know, maybe some of you have noticed a glaring... I mentioned these two texts in the New Testament about fathers. But folks, there is an arsenal here. There is a biblical barrage behind all this. There's a tidal wave that can just roll over us if we just simply go to the Word of God. Fathers are told to... We already said it. Bring up those children in the discipline and instruction or the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But you know what? By analogy, 1 Corinthians 4.15 shows us that children are to imitate their fathers. Paul tells Christians, imitate me like children imitate their father. Again, by analogy, Paul says to the Thessalonians, when I came among you, He says, I was like a father with his children. Well, what's a father like with his children? He says, exhorting, encouraging, charging to walk in a manner worthy of God. Psalm 78.4 Fathers are commanded to teach their children and show forth the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. Isaiah 38.19 says, The Father makes known to the children God's faithfulness. Proverbs 23.22 says, Listen to your children or says, listen to your father, children, who gave you life. We have a number of other proverbs that emphasize the responsibility of fathers. Here's one. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction. Be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me. He said to me, let your heart hold fast My words. Listen to this, folks. Listen to this, fathers. This is the Father. This is the example. Teaching His Son, keep My commandments and live. Live. Get wisdom. Get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of My mouth. Fathers, that your children may live. I'm not saying this to fill your time with unnecessary things. That your children may live. 
You can throw that right out the window if that means you can go live your life any old way you want to and hopefully God in all of His sovereignty will raise your children up out of that ash heap that you've created. That is not a proper perspective. That's just like C.T. Studd said. In all of that, that's blatant hypocrisy. You say you want your children to be saved and yet the Scriptures say, Fathers, you command your children that they might live. You, you find godly men in the Scriptures? There's godly Abraham. And God commends him. He'll command his family in the way that he should go, in the ways of the Lord. You've got, you've got Joshua there. As for me and my house, that's my children. We are going to serve the Lord. The Proverbs say, it says, Baraj, hear, my son, your father's instruction. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction and be attentive. My son, keep your father's commandment. A wise son hears his father's instruction. Men, fathers, what can we say? If you're to be telling your children about all of God's glorious works, if you're to be expressing God's faithfulness to them, if you're to be teaching them, if you're to be exhorting them, if you're to be disciplining them, if you're to be raising them and nurturing them in that fear, that nurture, that admonition of the Lord, if you're to be constantly exhorting, constantly giving an example before them, you go into into the Deuteronomy way back. What do you have? Teach God's commandments diligently to your children. Talk of them when you sit in your home, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. Fathers, how can you do that when you talk to your children five minutes a day? How can you do that when your wife is doing all the discipline in their life? When you've basically relegated all the spanking and all the instruction, you guys realize discipline is not all about bending that child over your knee. It's about sitting there with them. It'll cost you something for a half hour or an hour or two hours to tell them why what they've done is against the glory of Christ. It's not right. It doesn't lead to life. It's death. And we wonder... I, folks, I look around and I'm thinking, Lord, what is happening? I'm seeing professing Christian parents on every hand and their children are rising up in rebellion against their parents. And I'm looking at this and I'm saying, there's a problem here. There's a problem. And I know what it is. It's fathers are not rearing their children the way that the Scriptures say. I told you guys about this before. I've hit on this, but I'm concerned about the heritage, folks. What is the heritage going to look like? Are we simply islands in the vast humanity here and three and four generations down the road, there won't be an indication that there was any godliness in these family lines. You guys, back when I spoke to you about Eli, maybe a year ago, I told you this. Max Jukes, a man, he lived in New York. He did not believe in Christ or in Christian training. He refused to take his children to church even when they asked to go. He had, as of the time of these statistics being gathered, he had 1,026 descendants. 300 were sent to prison for an average term of 13 years. 190 were public prostitutes. 680 were admitted alcoholics. His family thus far has cost the state millions of dollars. They have not made a single positive contribution to society. Jonathan Edwards lived in the same state at the same time as Jukes. He loved the Lord. He saw to it that his children were in church every Sunday. He served the Lord 
to the best of his ability. He's had 929 descendants. Of these, 430 were ministers. 86 became university professors. 13 became university presidents. 75 authored good books. 7 were elected to the United States Congress. 1 became vice president of the country. His family never cost the state one cent, but has contributed immeasurably to American society. Men, what your family looks like three, four generations away, well, you better believe it's going to be affected by what you do with your life right now and how you invest it in your children. This is reality. The Scripture says you need to teach and command your children that they might live. When I read the missionary biography of John G. Payton, who went to the New Hebrides, one of the most impactful portions of that book, as far as I was concerned, was in the first two chapters. It had to do with the father of this missionary named James Patton. He would say of his father, he saw him go into a small room in the middle of the house, This was the sanctuary of that cottage home, Peyton says. Thither daily and oftentimes a day, generally after each meal, we saw our father retire and shut the door. And we children got to understand by a sort of spiritual instinct that prayers were being poured out there for us. As of old by the high priest within the veil in the the most holy place, We occasionally heard the pathetic echoes of a trembling voice pleading as if for life. And we learned to slip out and in past that door on tiptoe not to disturb that holy colloquy. The outside world might not know, but we knew whence came that happy light as of a newborn smile that always was dawning on my Father's face. It was a reflection from the Divine Presence in the consciousness of which He lived. Patton goes on to say that in all his growing up years, he never remembers family worship to have been interrupted. Morning and evening prayer and Bible reading and holy singing were not a chore and labor And John says that none of the children could ever remember that any day ever passed without this family worship. No hurry to market. No rush to business. No arrival of friends or guests. No trouble or sorrow or joy or excitement ever prevented at least our kneeling around the family altar while the high priest, his father, led our prayers to God and offered himself and his children there. John could say that each of us from very early days considered it no penalty but a great joy to go with our Father to the church. The four miles were a treat to our young spirits. The company, by the way, was fresh with excitement. He says, we youngsters had sometimes rare glimpses of what Christian talk may be and ought to be. The talks we heard were genuine, not the make-believe of religious conversation. 
That perhaps makes all the difference between talk that attracts children and talk that drives them away. The very discipline through which our Father passed us was a kind of religion in itself. If anything really serious required to be punished, our Father retired first to His closet for prayer. And we boys got to understand that He was laying the whole matter before God. And that was the severest part of the punishment for me to bear. I could have defied any amount of mere penalty. But this spoke to my conscience as a message from God. We loved Him all the more when we saw how much it cost Him to punish us. And in truth, He had never very much of that kind of work to do upon any one of all the eleven. We were ruled by love far more than fear. And he goes on to say, so powerful was the example and instruction and godliness of my Father that he could say, though everything else in religion were by some unthinkable catastrophe to be swept out of my memory or blotted from my understanding, my soul would wander back to those early years and shut itself up once again in that sanctuary closet and hearing still the echoes of those cries to God from my Father would hurl back all doubt with the victorious appeal. He walked with God, why may not I? Brothers, what is our testimony to our children? Are we provoking them? Are we ignoring them? Are you investing your life? I mean, I'll ask you this. What are your priorities? What are they? What is most important in your life? You know something? God designed families to have a godly leader, male leader in that family. Now we have ladies here that don't have husbands. Or we have ladies here who have lost husbands. And I would just say this to you. Pray for that. If you don't have a husband... You pray God to give you one. And if you have a husband, you pray God will make him like that. And he is able to do both. But let me tell you this. In this time right now where you don't have that, you know what? Take that burden to the Lord. Because He is the Father of widows and orphans. And if you're spiritually widowed and orphaned, oh, He is your God. And He will make up the difference. You can trust Him to do that. So ladies, don't be discouraged if you find yourself not in that place. I leave that with you. All of this will come to nothing if it doesn't hit our consciences with a fair enough amount of power to explode in there to propel us to make changes. You can't just say, yes, that's right. And then you walk out the doors and nothing changes. And there's no differences. And you know what? We've all failed. And we can all look at this example of, of Peyton's father and say, you know, I failed. I failed. But you know what? That's When we all come to Christ, we come as failures. And that's why we come to Him. And you won't come to Him unless you realize that you are one. And that you've sinned and you've loused up the whole deal. And you know what? He's just as much a Savior today as He was the first day we ever came to Him. And if we've messed it up, if we've not done well, then you know what? Confess and forsake your sin. And He is ready with wide open arms to forgive us. And He is the power 
How does it say back in is it it's Joel? He's able to restore what the locusts have eaten. Father, I pray that You'd give us grace. Lord, give us grace in this area, Father. May my brothers have... Lord, may they have the boldness and the courage. May they have... Lord, may we just have the the grit and the zeal to come home from a long day at work and then to still work on. To order our lives in such a way that our children are able to see our example. That we're able to invest our teaching and our commands and our exhortations We're able to show the children the faithfulness of our God and His good works and His glory. We're able to be in the Word with our children and be on our knees with our children and be pointing them to Christ all the time. Lord, I pray that our children would hear godly language come forth from our lips and see hearts that just well up with with longings and, and satisfaction and love for Christ. Lord, may they see in us what Patton saw in his father. If my father can have that, why cannot I? To see in a parent so much of the joy, so much of the pleasure of true religion that children want it. Oh God, may we be that kind of magnet to our children. Lord, I pray all of this for the sake and for the glory of He who is to have preeminence over all things. Amen. You are dismissed. We're going to set up...